first of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. And and after listening to you for now uh, over two hours, you really hit a magic feeling point for me. And uh, beforehand, I've seen you uh, talk with uh, Joe Rogan, and uh, I knew about uh, the medicine uh, and how the mushrooms can help health. Then you started to talk about bees. You struck a feeling chord with me that really, really, really hit home. But uh, let's uh, begin from the beginning, Paul, for people that do not know about you in Norway. Uh, how did you start to define the interest into mushrooms? Well, I started becoming interested in mushrooms when I was about five years of age, when my mother told me not to throw puffballs at my twin brother. And then when she went back in the house, I took that information and used it uh, by throwing as many puffballs at my twin brother as I could. <laughs> so thanks, Mom. <laughs> so um, anyhow, that, that's my first memory of mushrooms. Um, but I was always um, surprised at how quickly it would form. We'd have uh, rains in the summer in Ohio, and mushrooms would come up very quickly. And it was like, where'd they come from? It's always a big mystery to me. They just pop up and they would disappear. So I was always fascinated by something that could grow so quickly and disappear so quickly, whereas you know animals and plants they're around for a long time. I always uh, learned from I was little that uh, some mushrooms are dangerous. So I always thought about the mushrooms as dangerous. Well, that's why I think a lot of children rebel against their parents. Uh, we call it the forbidden fruit, and the mushrooms are clearly forbidden fruit by parents who are scared of. Their children getting poisoned, or their ch- children getting into magic mushrooms, and so they're nervous, and so they want to protect their children, which is a normal parental instinct. But for us children, when we were children, I think we were very skeptical about our parents' uh, you know instructions, and so oftentimes, you know, I think it's just natural for children to rebel against their parents. And I found the mushrooms as being forbidden fruit as being. One way that I could rebel against my family. <laughs> But when did you realize that the, uh, the mushrooms could have this uh, health impact? Well, the, the health impact—that's a really good question. Um, Dr. Andrew Weil is uh, my best friend. He's a famous doctor in the United States, and I wrote a book to magic mushrooms when I was 19 years of age, and before I even met him. The book didn't didn't come out until I was twenty or twenty one. It's called "Philosophy Mushrooms and Their Allies," and Dr. Andrew Weil uh, got a copy of the manuscript and wrote a foreword to it, uh, endorsing my work when I was so young. And so he, being a medical doctor, he is so busy, but he realized that he didn't have time to study this subject, but he knew the subject was really good. So he sort of empowered me to. You should look into this, and so I give him credit for inspiring me to look into the medicinal properties of, of mushrooms. And since he's a Harvard law, uh, medical school, you know, graduate and written many books, so um, you know, Andy gets a lot of credit for steering my path on the medicinal properties of mushrooms. But what are, are your academic backgrounds? I have a. I went to the Evergreen State College. I got a bachelor of science degree. Um, I had married a woman that was 11 years older than me when I was 22, and she had kids, children that are 14, 15, and 17. I'm 22 years of age, and suddenly I have a family of five, including myself. I was accepted into several graduate schools, but I couldn't afford to go to graduate school because I had a family. 
So it was very depressing because my friends went on to graduate school to become doctors or PhD scientists, and I was suddenly economically trapped. I couldn't afford to move. So I started this little mail order business in order to get scientific supplies wholesale. And so I was trying to stretch my money. And so I created this little mail order business. And um, so that I spent many, many hours. I packed 30,000 boxes before I had a single employee. Now I have now I have 100 employees. And uh, so it's been a long road. And many of my, my colleagists think that my path was a better path than theirs. They, they want to come work for me. <laughs> yeah, but listening to you say something about the paradigm shift. Uh, kind of explain what you, what you mean about the paradigm shift. Well, the unfortunately, we face 6X, the sixth greatest extinction event known in the history of life on this planet. And we're losing more than a third of our species in the next 100 years at these trends. This is the unraveling of nature. And we cannot think in the terms of our own lifespan. We really need to look at the first peoples in the United States are called the seven generations. They really, there's a lot of wisdom in that, looking at seven generations downstream. What is the influence of your activities? And because of the stock market and short training and uh, short trading and people eager to grab as much money as possible as quickly as possible, that's antithetical to the seventh generation principle. And because of that, greed and uh, competition has now prioritized many people's activities. And we need to have a long-term sustainability. And Norway has a very good tradition of looking at multi-generational management of force. You know, your, some of your families in Norway are legendary in the United States, where the grandchildren plant trees with the grandparents. And then when they're grand, they are grandparents, they can cut the trees. I mean, that's a perfect model of a multi-generational view towards habitat preservation and rest- restoration. So the paradigm shift that we need right now is to prevent 6X from um, unraveling the biology of nature. And we're not only the cause of 6X, you know, we're likely to be its victim. And this is going to cause a lot of strife, a lot of... Um, um, you know, politicization is going to cause a lot of, of, um, stratification of society, the people who are wealthy, the people who are increasingly poor. And that's going to lead to rebellion and social unrest. And so it's something we should pay attention to. It was very commonly known in Roman times that to destroy a society, you cut their force. You cut and burn their force. The Romans knew this as a political strategy that if they invaded another country or land by cutting all the trees and burning them, they would then, the society would be dependent upon the Romans. And so this is unfortunately, we are unwittingly uh, destroying our forests. And in doing so, we're losing the value of our ecosystem. And then zoonotic diseases, imbalances, what has given us homeostasis and sustainability is eroding. And we're, we're causing that. We're, it's like being on a ship and you give, and people have guns and they're shooting holes in the ship to see who can make the biggest hole because they want to hear the big bang. You know, it's, it's just not right. Then did you realize that we were doing this, uh, had its impact on the world that we are having today, this uh, extinction event that is uh, going on? And did you realize that? 
I've ingested my share of magic mushrooms, the psilocybin mushrooms. And um, every time I've ingested these, they're very spiritual to me. I only eat them once or twice every year or every other year. But those of us who uh, share this experience, I hear the biology of the earth calling out to me saying, wake up. Don't you understand? You, we need your help. Please, please help us. And that message keeps on coming back to me every time that I do these voyages into inner space when I'm out in nature. I have the sense of the ecosystem as a consciousness, and every member in the ecosystem has a voice, has a right to exist, and are asking us to democratize our view towards nature. The idea that we're a superior being is not right. We're a member of a community that we all are codependent. We are a shepherd of that community now. If we violate our sacred trust of the community of organisms, then we'll be voted off this planet. And that vote's happening right now. The, does the magic mushroom trips help you find solutions? Oh, absolutely. I just knew that I was... Um, I had the feeling that we can be ecological warriors, but peaceful ones. The concept of the peaceful warrior, going back to when I adopted my the three kids when I was younger, I had, um, had two martial arts schools, I have two black belts, and so I, my, I encouraged my, my adopted kids to attack me at any time, which they did, and I just loved it. I was like, go to try, try to attack me. You might get one punch in, but you're not going to win the fight. But uh, the idea of um, having authority, but and having power, but having bundling and that with kindness gives you respect. You want to respect the leader that's powerful but kind and is using their power for the community's best interest, not for their own. That's what a true leader is, not some egomaniac. And I won't mention pol <laughs> politicians in our country. But who would, who, would, who would you rather trust with your children's future? A greedy, stingy individual, you know, who's disconnected and only wants to empower themselves or somebody who looks like, Wow, I have a sacred responsibility to lead a nation. And this sacred responsibility is something that is unique and precious and important. Because I, I mentioned in my talk, it's the legacy that you leave, not the Mercedes you have in the garage. It's so true. What is happening to the bees now around the world, Paul? The massive die-off of bees. And it's um, due to multiple stressors. I like to describe this as being coefficient factors on uh, on an equation. You have multiple coefficients multiplied together, the end of which becomes health or disease. Unfortunately for the bees, there's multiple stressors, coefficients. Habitat loss is easy. There's factory farming. All the bees are concentrated in one location. There is then um, the exposure to neonicotinoids. And thank you, EU, for banning neonicotinoids. But now glyphosates are now known to interfere with the microbiome of bees. And um, then the varroa mite has been the biggest coefficient negative factor harming the bees. And the bees now are spreading viruses uh, throughout the plant kingdom as well as infecting the honeybees, managed honeybees, the European honeybee that is, that is cultivated basically. 
is now spreading viruses to wild bees. And so a virologist that I know, Dr. Jay Evans for the USDA, has told me that he has not seen a virus-free bee in 10 years. All bees in the world are now infected, and the honeybee has now infected the wild bees, and wild bees give you 80% of benefits of pollination services, farmers and in the nature. It's the wild bee that's heavy, heavy, carrying the heavy lifting for the ecosystem. All those wild bees are now infected with a, a slew of viruses that's vectored by the varroa mite, which is like having a pancake on your back, a parasitic pancake that's injecting viruses into you, into you. There's 27 viruses have been identified so far, but the deformed wing virus is the considered to be the nail in the coffin. The deformed wing virus shortens the flight span of bees. They used to fly for nine days to pollinate flowers. Now they only fly for four days. We see bees on a flower that the last week of their lives, but now the pollination flight time has been cut in half uh, because their wings are not as strong or the wings are deformed. They can't even fly at all. And so the cross vectoring of viruses, because an infected bee, when they land on a flower, will leave the viral particles in the flower. And then a native bumblebee may come to that flower and those bumblebees now are infected. And so this is, unfortunately, we have a viral pandemic. There are epidemics and epidemics are a virus that is uh, localized. A pandemic is many localized uh, infection points that then all come together and creates a wave of viruses that sweeps the landscape. So we have gone from epidemics, localized viral infections, to pandemics. And now the pandemic is the biggest threat to worldwide food biosecurity. Well, what would we do if we don't have food? You know, 30% of our food that we consume is directly dependent upon pollination. Many people don't realize that hay and alfalfa that is absolutely essential for the dairy and meat industry is uh, bee pollinated. Uh, all cherries, apples, almonds uh, are dependent upon bees. Tomatoes, an enormous amount of our food is dependent upon bee pollination. And one bee can pollinate a thousand flowers a day. So um, what person is going to go out and pollinate a thousand flowers a day? Uh, this is actually happening in China where they've lost the pollination services of bees and they have to hand pollinate their orchards. No. Yeah. With ladders, you know, and there, and the Chinese government has been in total denial that this is even happening from the reports I've seen, but the Chinese are very good at denying a lot of things. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. I think we also are denying it because uh, it came a study this summer. I think that uh, it was uh, 75%. Uh, I think it was a German study that 75% of the bees was dying off. And uh, it was in all the newspapers in Norway, but uh, we just well, shrugged it off and uh, walked our way. So I don't think we understand how serious it is. We don't, f well, we can still buy the food in the, in the stores. So we don't understand the seriousness. I think. Well, Norway is a much more advanced country and culture. I mean, and just in general. I mean, I've been all over the world, and Norway is a highly advanced culture. And even yet in this highly advanced culture of Norway, um, in a sense, our, our modern society has become denatured, is the lack of contact with nature, and not understanding that how important bees are. You don't know what you have until it's gone, is a common phrase. The great thing about Norwegians is their attachment to the forests. And so Norway could actually help lead the charge in, in renaturing in order to bring nature consciousness and looking at 
biodiversity as a form of not only biosecurity, but as natural capital, natural banking of species gives us the biodiversity that we need to be able to adapt to catastrophia, catastrophes. And when we lose biodiversity, it's like you losing skill sets of individuals who might have skill sets that can bring up to the forefront to repair the damage. So like how many, you know, everyone has teams and uh, nature has a team and we're losing a lot of our team members right now. So we might need those skill sets of those team members in the future. And if we lose them, then we're just like, like – the analogy I like to make is um, think of – there's about 14,000 species of identified mushrooms so far. And the, the numbers go up. There's about 150,000 species of mushrooms out there. There's about 2 million species in the kingdom of fungi. But let's stick with 14,000. In Europe and China in particular, think of our ancestors going into a library. There's 14,000 books, 14,000 species. And we selectively tested each species over thousands, indeed over millions of years. And we were able to select it down to about 200 species, really about 50 species that really are good for us, nutritious. They matched our microbiome. We know now, we didn't know back then, but from experiments, we knew which ones made us feel good or didn't make us feel good, which ones were edible, which ones were poisonous. And so if that library is reduced from 14,000 species to 500 species to 1,000 species, we don't know the numbers, but we do know that more than a third of the species in this planet are at this rate of extinction. And that's if it's linear. It's actually not a linear loss of species. It's a, it's probably much, it's probably accelerating. And we got to do something about this. And the thing is that fungi create soil that give life. And so by reinvesting in fungi, we reinvest in the soil bank. And the soil bank becomes richer and larger, has a greater carrying capacity. And a rule of nature is when a species exceeds the carrying capacity of its environment, then diseases, social unrest, war, I mean, this is true with rats, you know, uh, they compete, they fight each other, diseases spread. So by increasing, okay. <laughs> increasing the carrying capacity of the environment uh, takes away those stressors uh, that would eliminate the competition for scarce resources like food, et cetera. So we all have to meet the carrying capacity of our ecosystem. If we artificially inflate it, then we have temporarily prevented what is a natural consequence of what happens when you exceed. It's like being on a ship that's sinking and you have too many people on the ship. <laughs> and then your pumps don't, your pumps fail, right? And like if you sure. have fewer people on the ship, you wouldn't have to pump, pump as much water, right? So sure. I'm trying to make up analogies. Here that work. I'm not sure they work or not, but I'm just, I'm just guessing. How did you discover how to help the bees? And what did you discover? I discovered when growing a garden giant mushroom, the Latin name is Stropharia rugosa annulata, a long name, but there's a big garden giant mushroom up to two or three kilos of mushroom, very big. And I was had two beehives, and I was growing the garden giant mushroom. And in July of one year, I noticed that bees were in my mushroom bed outdoors in my garden, and they spread the wood chips away, which would be like, you know, one of us moving a, a truck. You know, uh, it's like a huge amount of effort to move these wood chips to expose the mycelium. And when they expose the mycelium, there's little droplets, like dew droplets. And I could see them sipping on the droplets. And I recorded this, and for 40 days, there was a convoy of bees going from my beehives to my 
mushroom patch from dawn to dusk, and I my mushroom patch shrunk. It was about a foot thick, and it became about you know um, three centimeters thick. And I saw them suck the mycelium over more than a month, and I was like fascinated by that. And so I photographed it, I reported it, I wrote it in one of my books, Growing Gourmet Medicinal Mushrooms in 1994, and then I kind of forgot about it. Then I became involved with the BioShield program of the U.S. Defense Department. People can Google my name, Stamets and Smallpox, and National Public Radio. They can hear interviews with the Department of Defense. There's a vetted press release. And and um, I discovered that some of these mushrooms in the forest reduce flu viruses and uh, herpes and smallpox. And um, the vetted press release from the Department of Defense said it's in the top 10 of more, they say more than 200,000, but it's more than 2 million samples submitted. I was in the very top 10. And that was the only natural product that had activity against these viruses. So later on, and a lot of other things happened, as you heard in my talk, but later on, fast forward, when I heard that the varroa mite was vectoring viruses to bees, I wonder if these same woodcock mushrooms that grow in the forest are active against herpes and smallpox and flu viruses, whether those extracts would reduce viruses in bees. And that's when we hit the huge home run and in, in baseball terms here. I have to be careful. So on uh, October 4th, the uh, renowned scientific journal, some is described as the, as the most respected scientific journal in the world. There's 12 of us authors. I'm the lead author. On October 4th of this year, just in a few days, uh, this article is being published that shows that a natural product coming from mycelium can reduce viruses in bees thousands of times. Uh, we, we don't report, as the next paper, we double the lifespan of the bees. So we first did antivirals to show the viruses reduced. Our next paper will be that not only the viruses are reduced, but now we return the bees from four to five days to nine days. So we have a direct measurement of redu- reduction of viruses that now extends longevity. And the fact that the same mushrooms reduce viruses that harm birds, bird flu, swine flu, H1N1, bird flu, H5N1, H7N9 is also a bird flu, um, and then reduces uh, uh, pox viruses and herpes. The fact that these same extracts reduce viruses in bees, I think, speaks to a bigger picture. I think I found something fundamental to the foundation of life, that the mycelial networks in nature control the immunological health of the animal and plant inhabitants that occupy the ecosystem. These fungi are deterministic. You know, I don't want, they're not overlords, they're underlords. They're under the ground, underneath your feet, and they control the immunological health and they steer the evolution of habitats. What was the feeling you got when you realized what the impact the discovery had? Well, I have now um, like 18 patents on this, and uh, patents are awarded because there's no one else has ever discovered this or mentioned it. And also experts are contrary to your opinion. So uh, to all my critics out there, I have a big thank you. <laughs> because when people say this won't work, that actually helps my patentability because it's called teaching away from the invention. You can't patent something that's logical. You have to patent something that no one else has thought about. And you want experts to say that will never work. So the patents that I received, the first five seconds when I have the massive search engines in every language, Norwegian, French, German, Japanese, Chinese, they came up with nothing. No one discovered before me, and I'm shocked by this, that the mycelium of wood rotting fungi improves the immune system of bees. 
when I first got the patent awards, I for about five seconds, but that's really only all it took five seconds. I was happy, and then I then immediately I thought, WTF? How is it possible that I'm the first one that discovered this? Are we truly Neanderthals with nuclear weapons? And the answer, I think, is yes. You know, we are so pompous. We're so egotistical. We think we're so friggin' important. You know, uh, a lot of other members in the eco- ecological community, you know, I think, as I say, uh, they're voting now. And uh, baseball analogy, but the, the the bases are loaded and nature bats last. You know, nature calls the shots ultimately at the end of the story. And uh, so... I'm happy to receive these, but I want to open source them. But I didn't want Monsanto, Syngenta, or Bayer to greenwash because I open source them. Anybody could do this. The advantage of patents is it gives you a commercial protection for 17 years to get it to market. A new idea that's discovered that doesn't get the market has no benefit to society. Think about it. Otherwise, who's going to risk their home, all their investments, and their money when somebody else can do the same thing? So by And that's why everybody even on this technology today that we're talking about. None of this technology would happen without patent protection. There's no incentive for people to take the risk to invest. And many, most, 99% of patents never make it to market. It's a shocking statistic. 99% of patents, even they're protected, don't make it to market. So think about how many would make it to market if there was no patent protection. So, so the idea is to open source it after 17 years to incentivize inventors. And Europe has a long, long history of great inventors, you know. Um, and we're here today because of innovation and the courage of people to take risks. And so this helps. Do you think you would have discovered what you have discovered if you haven't taken magic mushrooms? I am convinced I never would have discovered this. I think magic mushrooms rewired my brain. In what way, Paul? Well, I used to have a pr- profound stuttering habit. I couldn't communicate. Okay. And I took a... L- okay. <laughs> so I went through six years of speech, speech therapy, and I would... St- 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 I could not speak. Now, I I wouldn't stutter when I talk to animals or when I sing. And it's a very curious form of a speech impediment that us stutterers have. Is if you meet another stutterer, they're fun to talk to. It's fun also, you can talk to other stutterers about stuttering, and sometimes they don't stutter. <laughs> but if they meet somebody new or important, and in my case, there's a lot of noise. When I met Bill Gates, I stuttered, right? But my stuttering has largely gone away. But I had a very high dose of magic mushrooms, and I stopped stuttering in one day. But I still occasionally do stutter, you know, like I said, when I meet somebody really important, or if I'm, for me, if there's a lot of noise in the room and I've been drinking, then somebody asks me, how do you grow mushrooms? It's like filling a well with a teaspoon. It's like, I don't know where to begin. And um, so there, there's still a social phobia. But I have uh, spoken to many stutterers and uh, they're so happy to talk to me because I know they know I'm not prejudicial. It's a very much, it's not only a speech impediment, it's a social impediment. And so I always stared at the ground because I didn't want to stare at people in the eyes because if I stared at them in the eyes, they would talk to me and then I would stutter and I'd humiliate myself. So I looked at the ground and found mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> you also told us a story about your mother. Can you share that story with the Norwegian public? 
my mother had advanced stage four breast cancer. Stage there is no stage five. You're dead. So um, she has uh, advanced breast cancer. Her right breast was five times the size of her left. She's a charismatic Christian. Had not seen a doctor since 1968. And um, so he finally told me had metastasized. And then the oncologist in Seattle at a breast cancer hospital said it's the worst case of breast cancer she's seen in 20 years. It not only metastasized, it erupted. And I won't give the details of that, but it's just exactly as it sounds. It crossed the meridian and went into her spine and liver. And she was given just a few months to live. And we were awarded a $2.2 million breast cancer clinical study uh, separately using turkey tail mushroom mycelium. It's a bracket fungus that's very well studied. And my mother, at the same time, developed breast cancer. And so the oncologist at the Swedish Breast Cancer Clinic in Seattle, Washington, in the United States, had heard about our breast cancer uh, award for a clinical study. And she didn't even know I was involved. And I'm in the doctor's office. And my mother, who is 83 years of age, the doctor said, you're too old for a mastectomy. You might get an infection. We can't do radiation therapy. You're too old. Um, but she said there's an interesting study on turkey tail mushrooms for improving your immune system. And so my doctor in the office, independent of me, and I'm a co-investigator on this study, I told my mother about turkey tail, but she had to hear it from a doctor. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Son, I love you, but, uh, you know, I think I'll trust a doctor. So when the, when the doctor recommended turkey tail, that's when my mother said, okay, this sounds legit, you know? And so... She was put on Taxol briefly. She had a horrible reaction to it. It changed her personality. Um, and then she was put on Herceptin. Um, and then we with turkey tail mushroom mycelium, four capsules in the morning and four capsules in the evening. And she resolved uh, the tumors, totally disappeared in six months. She's now 93 years of age. She has had no detectable tumors for nine years and six months. And... Now, a study has come out showing that turkey tail mushrooms enhances the chemotherapeutic uh, benefits of Herceptin. And so that was published showing that the two of them together work in concert. Some of the scientists I've talked to, oncologists, um, specifically at Fred Hutch Cancer Center, have um, hypothesized that what these mushrooms do is they decloak tumors for discovery by the immune system. Tumors have a stroma, and they're very good at disguising themselves from detection. And so the cytotoxic T cells, which are your one of your front-end part of your immune system response, that the mushrooms uh, appear to do something to allow what's called immune discovery compared to immune evasion. The tumors are evading the immune system by cloaking themselves. And that with these mushrooms, something happens where the tumors are decloaked for immune discovery, and then the cytotoxic C cells can find receptors on the stroma of the tumors and then begin to break them apart. It must be an extreme feeling to save your own mother. I love my mother. In fact, right there. after this interview, I'm calling her. <laughs> She's 93, and wow. that's amazing. I mean, that's beyond the bell curve, <laughs> beyond where you and I will probably live. I mean, wow. we'll see. Wow. But. What other kind of uh, mushrooms have we discovered that are benefit for the health? Well, these, this agaricon mushroom in the old growth forest is phenomenal. It only grows 
in um, old growth forests, so Slovenian and um, and Austria and the and the Sky Islands and the Alps on large trees just don't grow, but it has a very long history of use in Europe, two thousand years. Dioscorides in the very first Materia Medica in sixty five A.D. described it as Elixirium at Longum Vitam, the elixir of long life, and so Agaricon it was discovered by the Greeks as being very good at fighting respiratory illnesses. And we discovered with the BioShield biodefense program, it's highly active against flu viruses. So there's a combination of ancient wisdom combined with modern science. And it's really wonderful that folkloric medicines, some of them are, are now validated by science. I mean, this is not like a, you can't throw out folklore as being meaningless. A, a really strange example of folklore now being proved by science is many of us, many of us in Europe and the United States have always heard that when there's lightning strikes, mushrooms come up. Okay. And that's, you know, and fairy rings and things like that. Well, in Japan, they found that if you can electrocute your shiitake logs, <laughs> I think it's with 50,000 volts okay. of electricity, you can double the yields. And so here's an example of folklore was lightning causes mushrooms to form. And the scientists decided, well, let's try it. And they found that if you pulse your shiitake logs, which are grown on logs, with electricity, you can double the yields. So it's like we should not – I mean, the problem with Western science is we went to the magic bullet approach, a single constituent with a single activity. Well, nature is based on the complexity and the, what these mushrooms offer is a complexity of compounds, which then dovetail. And when we consume them, or our body can select out from that menu of possible constituents, that constituents that has a quote unquote need or appetite for. I think it's very similar to like, I don't know if you've had this experience before, but sometimes I have an urge for an orange or like vitamin C. I have this like, this kind of innate urge, like I need to have an orange or something like this. And I think that's your body telling your, 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 <laughs> your, your prefrontal lobes that, Hey, Hey, uh, you know, uh, uh, central control, uh, I need something, you know? So I think that we should pay attention to these uh, innate impulses. And I think there, it doesn't make sense that we would be, uh, not sensitive to them. Your body is designed to, to um, tell your mind what it needs. And uh, when you're impoverished in certain nutrients, then you have a hunger for them. Well, protein and carbohydrates are obvious, but some of these other compounds are a lot more subtle. What do you recommend to take as uh, mushrooms if you're having the flu, for example, or the cold? What do you recommend? Well, I that, see, recommend is a is a legal term that we had tried to avoid. Okay. I'm not allowed to make medical recommendations. What do you use for yourself? What, what do I do for myself? Yeah. Um, I, I take a five species, um, blend and it's a spray that has a garicon in it. It has chaga. It has reishi. It has a birch polypore called the bootstrap polypore that grows here in Norway on birch trees. Okay. What's special about that one? <sighs> That's a crazy one. <laughs> Everybody should look this up to believe it. It is okay. so weird. The, the bootstrap mushroom is called, uh, Latin name is called Piptoporus betulinus. Rose on betula on birch trees. Why is it called the bootstrap mushroom? This is a soft mushroom. You can cut it easily, break it apart, but you dry it and it sharpens steel. What? It's called the bootstrap mushroom because it sharpens razor blades. 
And so if you wanted to sharpen a sword or a knife or a razor blade, this soft mushroom, when it dries, because it allows you to sharpen blades. I mean, our ancestors, out of necessity, you know, a, a good invention is carried forward. Someone in Europe discovered this, and these mushrooms can actually sharpen blades. And it's called the bootstrap mushroom because the bootstraps, you know, with, with the, the, the people, you know, the haircutters would use to sharpen their razor blades. So that one also has betulinic acid in it, which we know is a powerful immunomodulator and has some antiviral constituents. So, um, I use this blend, um, you know, especially I just shook hands with two or 300 people. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go wash my hands and I, I dose myself with MycoShield. You know, I, I immediately, I like, okay, I got about 200 new vectors exposed to me. I look at people now, not like, you know, oh, nice, nice lecture. I love mm. you. I go, hmm, are you a viral vector? <laughs> are you a, do you have a friendly microbiome or are you a, a source of pathogens? So, sorry. I mean, you know, but I just have to, I have to wonder, you know, it's like, because I think a lot of times, People are, are, if they're super conscious, they're aware of the individual that's infecting them. So, you know, you're on a bus, you're on an airplane, someone is hacking or sneezing. The problem with the flu viruses, and I have several friends who are flu doctors and specialists, is you can be asymptomatic but highly contagious. So even before you have visible symptoms, the viruses are reproducing so fast and um everyone has every breath you take every word that you speak you are you are spitting out micro droplets um and if people knew as much as many of us virologists knew the aspiration of droplets from just speaking and breathing and is just phenomenal um it's why things are, respiratory viruses and respiratory bacteria are so contagious um especially in tight closed corners so you know, isolation from populations prevents pandemics. What kind of mushrooms would you use to calm your uh, central central nervous system, for example, if you're stressed or get anxiety? What would you use for that one? Well, that's a really complicated question and a good, <laughs> and a good question. Um, the mushroom that I like for as a nerve tonic by far is lion's mane. Lion's mane mushrooms uh, is well known now to cause neurogenesis. And um, excellent studies. I have a website called mushroomreferences.com. You can look it up. All the studies are in there, or many of the studies are in there. And lion's mane causes regeneration of myelin on the axons of nerves. And so it leads to neurogenesis. And So for it, people with MS, for example? Well, Dr. Kawagishi gets credit for this in 1994. He was awarded a patent, and he states in the patent that lion's mane mushrooms, uh, compounds called aranacines, they are named after Herisium aranaceus, which is the name of the lion's mane mushroom. He, in the, he has patent specifically identifies MS Parkinson's. And at that time, um, is, a uh, is Alzheimer's like, uh, dementia. And he thought this would be a treatment, uh, for that. It's now off patent. Um, but this is a smart mushroom. And as a, this is a mushroom that I, my mother takes every day and she's sharp as a whip. She's un- unbelievably, she has no signs of dementia at all. She's 93. And uh, so that is a mushroom that I, it's a easily obtained mushroom. It grows in the wild here in Europe. It looks like um, cascading icicles as a ball. Okay. Cascading icicles. It's really unmistakable. 
And there's bear's head, lion's mane mushroom, Hirsium mm. abiatus is a bear's head in the United States and Canada. We call it that. There's lion's mane, which is Hirsium arenaceus. The Japanese call it Yamabushi Taki. Um, but it looks like pom poms of a cheerleader in the United States. We have cheerleaders, you know. Yeah. So it's the palm, as a white pom pom mm. uh, mushroom. But that mushroom is, um, is extremely good for, I think, improving cognitive function. There's two clinical studies out on it that shows you know, benefit. And we all will suffer some, some form of dementia as we get older. And this is where the tragedy of aging and developing dementia is that we are like losing libraries of knowledge that are not being passed down to future generations. And it's tra- tragic. It's a loss of the body intellect of society to have dementia robbing society from the wisdom of their elders. You know, we should be Einsteins until the day we die and pass on that knowledge for future generations. What is that uh, that uh, trigger you to do all this, uh, Paul? What uh, helps you or what uh, motivates you to stand up each day and work? Well, I, my clear motivation is um, we're all going to die. How do you want to be remembered? I mean, think about it. Do you want to be remembered where your grandfather was uh, a hero who brought knowledge and wisdom and health and protected people? You know, do you want to be, you want to be known as a King Arthur or Hitler? What does Hitler's descendants think of him? Huh? I mean, that's the extreme examples, I do admit. But I, I like, I'm motivated by if we can increase the body intellect of our society, preserve biodiversity, then we have a foundation for sustainable growth for generations to come. We owe it to our descendants. And I have a number of First Nations, Indigenous people, elders, and it's amazing that scientists today and the shamans of the past, for instance, hold in common that diseases can be caused by the invisible. Shamans will call them spirits. Scientists will call them microbes. But they're unified and looking at the body's system as a system of health. Also, our society is a system of health. What components in our society that we can strengthen? Each one of us can make a contribution. I want my contribution to be significant enough that my descendants will feel proud of who their grandfather was. You can't take it with you, but you can leave a legacy. Each one of us should leave a legacy that our descendants will be proud of what we did. You are for sure doing that, Paul, after your uh, talk here earlier. Everybody stand up and uh, clap for five minutes, so you are clearly doing that work. Uh, where can we follow you and your work in uh, social media? Well, I'm at fungi.com. I have a youtube.com slash Paul Stamets channel, um, and they can follow me on that. And my Instagram account is very popular. And then uh, hostdefense.no is a website here in Norway. That'll be um, kind of leading some of the efforts here and spreading the knowledge. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me, Paul. All right. Thank you much. All right. Take okay, care. Okay. Bye-bye.